you have your Bibles with you tonight, turn to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. Just before we leave Genesis behind, for now anyway, it would do us well to remind ourselves of the fact that the New Testament reintroduces us to creation. Genesis revealed that God is a God of both plan and promise, and the scriptures that describe him to us continue to do so in terms of plan and promise. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world was not an entirely foreign concept to the word of scripture. It was the culmination, really, of its progression. It was the beginning of a new creation. It was the word spoken into the void of sin and death this time. It was the reintroduction of light, of true light now. Notice that. John calls the light that Jesus is the true light. That is not what light was called in Genesis, but it's what it's called in John. It was the birth of a new Adam, and from his bleeding side would come a new Eve. And with the image of God perfectly restored... They will be fruitful and multiply until the glory of the Lord spreads and covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. The incarnation of Jesus is the incarnation of the promise God made in Genesis to save his people from their sins. Let me pray for us. Father, we, your people, are thankful tonight for your word. I ask you, God, to help me speak clearly, concisely. Please watch over me, Father. Watch over everyone who hears and for your name and for your glory and for your people. Help us to see. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you you, you see that right away. John's choice of words takes us back immediately, doesn't it? Those words recall Genesis and its description of how God created the world out of nothing by his Word, But that world that was created fell. The first man, Adam, sinned against God, threw humanity into sin and death under the curse. So we're meant to read John with Genesis in our minds, but read it as a new beginning. But what John describes here is a new creation happening inside the old one while it still exists. He's going to paint a new picture of humanity for us, telling the story of a new Adam through the eyes of Jesus. There's been a new creation. There is a new Adam, and therefore there will be a new result. The curse of sin and death is no longer the final word. John tells us that the word through which God created all things was actually a person. In those first three verses, John reveals that Jesus, who was the word, was not created, but was the Creator, And I think we get these seemingly redundant statements or, or enigmatic ones. Maybe it's, it's said better. He was God. He was with God. Which is it? Well, it's, it's both. In the beginning 
He made everything. Everything that was made was made by him. I think we get those, not necessarily because John was trying to be so eloquent or something, but because explaining this, grasping this is very hard. It is very hard. How does one understand what we're reading? He he wants to be sure, I think, that we understand who Jesus is. Or maybe even better said, that we at least are as astounded at who he is as John apparently is. He's telling us that the one we're about to see the story of on the pages of John existed long before what we see on the pages of John. The Word had no beginning. The Word was not something that came into existence. All time and space are his servants. He created time and space. He is their source. Just ponder that. How do you create time? I mean, it's, it's just, it's mind-blowing. This word, this Jesus is the very source of all humanity in verse 4. Before we were created from the dust, we were an idea in the mind of God. He truly is the definition of existence. And his non-beginning, unending life is the light, the scripture says, of all mankind. He is our origin. We came from him. Our life generates from him. He's the light that gives us life. He he speaks of that life-giving essence in terms of light here. There is no one that can understand us or search us or know us like the one whose very essence is the source of our very existence. John is telling us that this life-giving word has a connection to us that fully comprehends us. Our reality is limited, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's only so much we can do. There's only so much we can know. And not only are we limited in the sense that we're effect, not cause, right? We're created. We're not creator. We're human. We're not divine. Not only are we limited by these natural facts or realities, we live in the darkness Because of the fall from the grace of the first creation, we are tainted spiritually. So we're limited naturally. Yes, nobody really denies that. But we're also limited spiritually in what we can see, in what we can grasp. That's given to us here in terms of light and darkness. Sin has a grip on us. Death waits for all of us. Time marches on whether we want it to stop or not. We can't stop time and we want to stay in the darkness. We like it. John will tell us in John 3, or Jesus will tell us, excuse me, in John 3, that we don't want to be seen. We don't want to come into the light. We don't want to be found. We don't want to be owned or ruled. All these things We're covered by natural and spiritual darkness. So we're born blind and we're born incurable on our own terms, right, from earth. But verse 5 whispers to us like Genesis 3.15 whispered to Adam and Eve. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. God gave a promise way back in Eden when we fell. He told the serpent that he would put enmity, conflict between his offspring and the offspring of the woman. And one day the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would in turn crush the serpent's head. So at the outset of creation, even at the fall, 
God puts the universe on notice that the day will come that the curse of the serpent would be undone and it would be overcome. And then here, at the beginning of a new creation with a new light and a new Adam, we discover that this light is a light that cannot be overcome. Whatever this light is, it cannot fall. It cannot be undone. It cannot be cursed. It cannot be put out, so to speak. This is the unconquerable seed of the new creation. And the old cannot overcome the new. John is inviting us back into the story of creation. Humanity is being offered a reprieve here. Redemption is being hinted at here. Something is happening. The first recorded words of our God were, let there be light. And that light, natural light, separated light from darkness. But this light, the true light, I think what light actually is then, isn't just separate from the darkness. It overcomes the darkness. So they don't just mutually exist. One overcomes the other. The darkness is unsuccessful in its attempt to overcome this light. And Jesus is not just a light, he is the light, and he is shining. He is, as Zechariah reminds us in Luke, the sunrise that will visit us from on high. What John is telling us here is to go back and understand what God was ultimately saying with those first recorded words, let there be light. God's true light is the source of spiritual life. It's how we come back to him. It's how we break free from the darkness. Let there be light is the mantra of recreation, of regeneration. When Jesus came into the world, it was the entrance literally into space and time of the light of the world into or onto our planet. And this light pierces all the darkness. The true light is shining. Jesus is shining all the time in the darkness. He can't be avoided. He gives life. In Second Corinthians 4, Paul tells us that The God who said, let there be light out of this darkness, way back at the beginning, has made the true light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of his son, who is the word, Jesus Christ. When natural light split split from the darkness in the beginning, God was showing us what he would do in our hearts that would make us able to believe in the son When he sends him, God was conquering the darkness before darkness ever fell. The original creation was created to foreshadow the new creation. That was the whole point. It's all for redemption. The original darkness's inability to comprehend or overcome the light was a picture for us of how Jesus would save us, of how Jesus was greater than the darkness in us and in the world. The glory of the God who made all things is found in the face of the word, his son, Jesus. Light has always been a metaphor for how we might know our God. Every time this happens in your life, every time light pierces darkness, and it does it so well. Have you ever noticed that? The smallest light changes everything when things are pitch black. But every time that happens, every time you see that, remember Who Jesus is. That's what he does. So when you turn on a light in a pitch black room where only seconds before you literally couldn't see your hand in front of your face. You remember that Jesus Christ is just like that in our souls. 
in this world when all the other lights have gone out. And they have. Pick it up in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The last prophet of the Old Testament era, John the Baptist, was a witness to this light. Which means, I think part of what John the Apostle here, this is not John the Baptist writing, this is John the Apostle. What he's trying to do is show us that the world then must need witnesses to the light. Why? Why? You don't need a witness to light. It's there or it's not. You don't need anybody to say, hey, the light's on. You know whether or not the light's on. Not this light. Right? Not the true light. That's not perceived naturally. It requires a witness because we're blind. Light is self-revelatory unless you're blind. Then you have to be told unless maybe... Um, I guess I, I don't really know that. I guess maybe blind people are able to tell the difference when they're in darkness and when they're in light, but I don't know that they just see all black. I, I don't know. But theoretically, you don't need a witness to the light unless you're blind. You'd have to be told where light was. I don't suppose it would matter much, and I don't say that to be facetious. I One of the funnest things about being a, a pastor's kid when I was growing up is that we'd have these revival meetings like like. You know, spring revival or fall revival. It's so funny that you tell God, this is when we're having revival. You show up in the fall and you show up in the spring. And then, so it's just, it's just kind of funny. But the evangelists would always stay at our house and it was, it was a riot. It was the funnest part. My dad would always be like, could you just go downstairs, please? Like he always wanted me out of the room because just, but anyway, um, we had a, a, a pastor one time stay with us named Joe Jordan, played the piano beautifully. And sang beautifully and, and preached, but he was blind. And I, I don't mean a little bit blind, I mean blind. And when he first got to our house, um, we took his stuff to, to, uh, our, you know, the room where he was sleeping. And then I showed him where the bathroom is and I said, here, let me get the light for you. And he said, that's fine. <laughs> he said, he said, it doesn't, it doesn't matter at all. Stories like that are why sermons go long. I don't know what my point was there. I don't remember what I was what I was getting at, but the description of Jesus as light is God telling us that we are spiritually blind. That that's that's what we need to hear. In other words, we are going to need healed in order to believe in the word when we hear it. Because we're blind. The word is the light. It should be evident. It is not. Right? It needs a witness to it. And the means God has given to the world to bring about belief is witness. John the Apostle, the author, is giving us a rationale for writing. John the Baptist, the one who acts as the hinge, because he did between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, he was massively important, but he was not the light, John the Apostle is saying. The Old Testament era he finalized then was also not the true light for the world. It was revelation, absolutely, and it did come from God, but it wasn't the true light that came into the world. It was a light, not the true light. None of us are that light, but we are all witnesses to it, 
as the church. This light cannot be seen with natural eyes. It can only be shown to us by a witness through whom God uses his gospel to open blind eyes. That's the role of everyone else in the story of Jesus. Witnesses. Witnesses. Have you ever, have you ever tried to show a child something and you're pointing at it, look, 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 and they look at your finger. Right? And you're like, no, 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 not, not, not that. Look at that. Look at that. We are the finger. We don't want the world looking at us. We want the world looking at what we're pointing to, right? We're witnesses. We testify to something. Look at 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's When Jesus was coming into the world, that's what was happening. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. How is that possible? Right? How is that possible? He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That statement should make us stop and say, well, how? Right? Something has happened. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John is reminding us in verse 9 that the source of all life has himself become human. The one who gave life to the world is becoming a part of the world. But the world in verse 10, even though he made it, did not recognize him. Verse 10 is a bit of a hook then to bring us into the story. What is wrong with the world? Why didn't the world recognize him, its maker? So again, darkness is not just something to do with the absence of natural light in the Bible. There's a problem here. This darkness keeps us from recognizing our maker. The darkness is so deep, in fact, that in verse 11, John reminds us that even the people to whom God had already revealed himself previously failed to recognize him when he came in person. That's amazing, right? Before they were given the law, now they're given a person and they don't know who he is. They don't recognize him. By and large, Israel rejected her Messiah, they still do, by and large, by and large. They refuse the light. Even Israel refused the light. Even the people that had seen the Red Sea split, the, the, the people that had watched the walls of Jericho come crashing down, the people that, that had for a time the Ark of the Covenant among them, they didn't receive Jesus. They didn't want Him. Some of the most important themes in the book of John, by the way, are contained in the first 18 verses of the book, something is very wrong with humanity that will take an absolute supernatural invasion to fix is what we're learning if we were going through the Gospel of John here in chapter 1. And Israel's rejection of Jesus in particular teaches us that our problem as humanity must be much deeper than, than a lack of facts or evidence for God, right? As if we had all the evidence, we would believe him. No, we wouldn't. We have plenty of evidence. We still suppress him. And the people that had more evidence than anybody else didn't want him, didn't recognize him, didn't accept him or receive him when he came. Something much bigger than what is outside of us is what's wrong with us. There's something going on inside of us that is fatal, just absolutely fatal, that keeps us blind and in the dark. The cause of our inability and separation and rejection when it comes to Jesus is within us. That's why verses 12 through 13 read the way they do. And these verses are massive. Look at 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, gave the right 
to become children of God. Who were born, these children, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That's a trifecta. Do you notice that? What? Three times. He, he tells you how they were not made into children of God. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Because of the darkness. Verses 12 through 13 are, are trying to tell us that the salvation that comes to the world is pure gift. It describes becoming God's child as the result of something that happened to us, not something we did for ourselves. But remember, as you think through that, what is the backdrop here? Creation. What happened at creation? That. Right? It's, it's not like something existed and demanded to be created. There was nothing but God. Salvation is then presented in terms of birth. That's it's very... What did you and I have to do with our birth? What do we have to do with it? We came out when our mom pushed. That's what we did. And if we wouldn't have, they would have come after us. Right? Use the little tweezers, makes your head into a cone or whatever they do. I don't know. But if you're not coming out, they're going to come get you. But we didn't have anything to do with it. We certainly didn't have anything to do with our conception, let alone our birth. It's very interesting to talk about becoming a child of God in terms like that. Because we don't naturally see it that way. We think that everybody's this kind of neutral slate. And as you hear, some people are like, you know what, that sounds good, I'll believe that. And other people just decide not to believe it, but something more is going on. Because the darkness that we're under is not neutral. It's killed us. That's why becoming a child of God is spoken of in these terms. The right to become God's child that the scripture speaks of, then, is not inalienable. We're not born with the right to become God's child if we want to someday. That's not a right bestowed to every human being. I know that's unsettling, but those are the terms in which the Bible speaks. This is a right that's given, not a right you possess by virtue of your existence. If we could understand this, God's sovereignty and our salvation, as taught to us so often in Scripture, would be so much easier to accept. Our first birth does not automatically give us the right to become God's child. You don't attain the right to become a child of God just by being human and existing. And so now God has to recognize this and give everyone their rights or God is not fair. We, we, I know we've talked about that before. Always remember that because it, it has teeth. You and I do not want God to start being fair. That's a nightmare for everybody. Right? So we need to, to let the scripture have its way. Just let it work. Alright, let, let it work. If salvation was owed to us, beloved, think this through. If salvation was our right, there's no need whatsoever to talk about grace. Right? It, it, there's no need whatsoever to talk about light and darkness. If it's owed, it's owed and God better do it or he's unjust. 
Again, again, the, the implications are there are no songs. Uh, you don't sing when you get your paycheck. You raise a stink if you don't because you did the work. Right? They're not doing you a favor when they give you what you earned. You don't write songs about that. You don't rejoice about that. That doesn't humble you. It, it's owed to you. Right? And you should feel very confident in that. I did the work. I deserve my pay. That's not what salvation is. That, that we don't have this inalienable right for God to save us. In fact, we're conceived earning exactly the opposite from God. My conception means I should be condemned the minute I pop into existence. I'm a descendant of Adam. That's all the language John is using here. Yes, the right is given once it's given irrevocably to all who believe, but belief here in verse 13 is described how? In terms of being born again. Not the first time. That didn't give me the right. It's the second birth he's talking about that gives me the right to be a child of God. And those who believe apparently are not those who saw the light. Because why? Why do we know that's not how they did it? Because you can't. You're in the darkness. We're blind. After all, Jesus came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. Why did John put that there in verse 11? To reiterate the fact that our spiritual blindness is so severe, we can't just receive him. It won't happen. If it didn't happen in Israel, it's not, it's not going to happen now. Right? If, if, if the people that God had been carrying along all this time, if when he came, they couldn't see him. Beloved, how in the world are we going to see him? Are we going to receive him? In other words, John is saying, look, people don't just receive God. It's not natural. That's what the darkness has done. That's why he's talking about Jesus in terms of light and the word and creation. So those who believe, which is those who are born again, are not born so naturally by blood. It's not genetic, he's saying. They're not born by the will of their own flesh. That, I, I didn't know that. I thought I decided. You did. You did. But something happened first. Right? Don't, don't forget that, beloved. Alright? They're not born by the will of their own flesh. The Bible clearly says this. And they're not born by the will of someone else's flesh for them. They're born of God. How does God create? With His Word. Right? That's how they're born. That's how the first human was born naturally. It's how the redeemed ones are born spiritually. The word that gives light because we're in darkness. The void and darkness can do nothing until God's light introducing, life giving word speaks into it to create. We are born by the life creating miracle of a word when we're born of God, when we're born again. Remember, the original creation did not will itself into existence. What what could have done that? The void in the beginning is a picture of the void in the unbelieving human heart. What can it do? Beloved, salvation is pure miracle. You see that? It's pure miracle. And the prototype was Genesis 1. 
In the beginning was the Word. That voice is the voice who speaks into the void and darkness of our hearts that we might come forth, that faith might be created. He saves like He creates so that no one can boast. Remember the Paul telling you that in Ephesians? The whole so that of salvation by grace through faith alone apart from works is so that no one can boast, right? What does the world have to brag about? What does the baby on the table have to brag about? What did it do? So as the true light gives natural life to all humanity, he also gives spiritual life when he shines on a person enabling them to believe in his name. Our belief in Christ is the result of the life-creating word of Jesus being spoken into the void and darkness inside of us and creating faith. Right? This is not your own doing. Remember Ephesians 2. It is not your own doing. It is the gift gave here. It's a given right. In Ephesians 2, it's a gift so that no one can boast. In other words, the way God saves completely takes out any hint of being able to brag about the decision that you made. Right. Or feel more enlightened or smarter, which which isn't just for our theology. That should really have a genuine everyday effect on how we look at unbelievers. Yes, they're willfully denying the truth about Jesus and they're culpable and responsible for it. No question. But at the same time, they can't see. Right. Don't be so I'm saying that to myself also. Don't be so angry at them. They're blind. They're blind. They don't want to come into darkness or come out of the darkness, but they can't either. The church is going to have to be in the miracle business for salvation to take place. Our belief in Christ is the result of his life-creating word in us. We're born again so that we can believe. Two chapters later, that's precisely what he says to Nicodemus. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? Something has to happen to Nicodemus so he can just see the kingdom. Sight, see, is a blindness word, a darkness word. We don't create faith. It's not our own doing. Jesus creates faith in us with the life-giving word or life-giving light of his eternal word. His word creates out of nothing, right? So it's not like we throw up our hands and say, well, then it's worthless to preach the gospel. No, no, no. It's the only thing that can save people. It's the only word that gives life. He brings us to life that we might believe. All I'm doing in preaching is trying, is trying to preach the word through which Jesus brings life. It is very hard to learn, because I still don't do it, that my the, the, the crafting of my argument, the tone or volume of my voice, the, the, the winsomeness of my, my delivery is not going to save anybody. Right? So so normally the a pastor walks out of a pulpit feeling like a tremendous failure because you've you've built you've made yourself think you can do something. I'm powerless to actually do this. But the word isn't. 
Right? So, by the way, just when you pray for me, pray that I'll believe what I say. That the word gives life, not me. Right? But now, now in light of this, now listen to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This word, Jesus, John is saying here, is not fundamentally a son like us, in that he didn't become a son, he doesn't have to, but he did become flesh, he became like us. He took on flesh, added humanity to his eternal divinity, and made his dwelling among us, and John says, and we saw it, we looked right at it. We saw this glory, the glory of the one and only Son. That's the kind of Son the Word is, who came from the Father. We are born of God, born from above, to become the children of God. Jesus became born of a woman, born below, conceived in Mary's tummy by the Holy Spirit to become human. And John was an eyewitness to that life. And he called, this is the beautiful thing, he called everything that he saw, everything that he's about to tell us over the next 20 chapters, his glory. And that glory is full of grace and truth. In other words, that's what God's glory looks like in the flesh. If God were to reveal this glory of his, that the scripture speaks of so often, it will look like Jesus. That is what it looks like when God's promise takes on human form so that he himself might literally, with his literal human hands, accomplish it. That, that's amazing. He makes this promise. Then he comes to bring it about physically with his hands and his body Grace and truth is what the glory of God revealed is full of. Those are promise words. Jesus Christ is the personification of God's grace and of God's truth. Everything we need for the promise to be ours is wrapped up in the humanity of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist bore witness to the kind of word, to the kind of son, sorry, that the word was. And he made it clear that even though Jesus came after him chronologically in the order of time, he was his superior because he is God. He is before everything. Why is it that the older would always serve the younger? Because the youngest of that era, Jesus, is the one that all of them would serve. It was all taking us to him the whole time we were reading it. He is before everything. Jesus Christ is God. He is before everything. All right, so 15 is a parenthesis. So for the sake of clarity, let me back up to 15 and then read Or back up to 14, read it, and then go right to 16 and 17, okay? 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For because the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It is out of the fullness of this Son, described back in verse 14, the eternal, divine, irrevocable perfection, sufficiency, and fullness of the Word of God. From that, we have received grace from God. Beloved, back up from that for a minute. The sum of Jesus is grace upon grace. That's what Jesus is in Full, pure grace, pure truth, 100 proof, not diluted at all. And notice the word for there at the beginning of verse 17, answering why we receive the fullness of grace in Christ Jesus. Because God had given something prior, the law. God gave the law through Moses. What did that do? What did that reveal? Through the Mosaic law, God has proven what? The sinfulness and guilt of human beings by their utter inability to keep it. And now the the last nail in the coffin of that is their rejection of their maker, of Jesus, of their Messiah. Notice how the text is making a distinction between the law and grace and truth. They're not at odds with one another. It's not, again, God is not making void the old era. There's a categorical difference. Moses revealed the former. He revealed the law. Jesus reveals the latter. He reveals grace and truth. But the one who gave the ministry of condemnation, as Paul will call it, through Moses, is the very same one who has given the ministry of grace and truth through Jesus. And verse 18 reveals that it is Jesus, it is grace and truth that clearly, fully, completely reveals God, not what came before Jesus. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Wait wait a minute. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What do we just read? First of all, beloved, God was not revealed visibly in the law, right? But only in and through Jesus Christ, first of all. In other words, you, the law is not the be all end all. God is not seen clearly in the law. He's seen clearly in that which is the revelation of grace and truth, not the revelation of law. His Son, the Word, Jesus Christ. In Genesis, God had originally revealed Himself first and foremost as a creating God who moves in mercy to promise humanity He will act to undo the curse and forgive their sin. When the law came, the law did not reveal that aspect of Him, but the fact that He's holy and must be obeyed. It is in the revelation of Jesus that God reminds us of who He is. A God of promise, a God full of grace and truth, whose promise is incarnated 
in the person of his son. It's very beautiful that this prologue is summarized at this moment in a verse that says more than the human mind can comprehend. That's an amazing way to shut down your prologue. Yes, God has revealed himself fully in the person of Christ, but that doesn't mean that now you can exhaustively understand God. The only God who is at the Father's side. Well, which one is the only God? He has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but he's incarnated. What is, what is, what is happening here? So is there only one God? Or is there someone at his side who is also God? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that, that's... I think we have to be careful about making some of these things like the litmus test of orthodoxy. When I, 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 I think I know what it, I mean. We can explain it in terms. Well, there's there's a Godhead, and they're equal in essence, but they're, they have separated. They have different roles. I right, yes, but no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. So he's the only one or not? Yes, he is. <laughs> he has made him known. Beloved, in Jesus, here's the point, though. I think it's on purpose that his last verse is so... That which is utterly incomprehensible has become completely accessible. Heaven has come down and touched the earth. And in his hands are the fullness of grace and truth. When John called Jesus the Word, he was telling us that God is what he says. In the promise is the revelation of God. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the promise. The entrance of Jesus into the world is God's proclamation that for all who want to know him, he's shutting down the slaughterhouse of Old Testament sacrifices. He's about to fulfill and move on from everything that came before. He's about to move mankind from the temple to the table and sit down and eat with us and call us friends and daughters and sons. Right? We, we, we have become so formal in our requirements of the Lord's Supper and all the kind of formality that has to go. I'm not saying we should do it disrespectfully and have Oreos and milk or something. I don't mean that at all. I'm simply saying we are remembering the fact that now you may sit down and eat with God. You know, that, that's when you consider the Old Testament era. That is amazing. That's why those Pharisees hated Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners simultaneously claiming to be God. If there was anything God wouldn't do, it would be eat with rotten, filthy sinners. And that's precisely what Jesus does. All through a new and living way, as Hebrews 10 tells us, that is... We will be brought near to God through Jesus himself, not through keeping rules, not through ceremonies, not through sacrifices. Living sacrifice. Don't die for me, I died for you. 
Everything we need and want to know about God, about life, we will only ever find in Jesus. And as, as we, in two weeks, we're going to head into Ecclesiastes. So I don't want to forget that I made that statement because it's not as cut and dry as it sounds. When I say that the key to understanding everything about life is in Jesus, I don't mean that you get all the answers. That, that's a whole separate thing. I'm saying the only way to make sense of the fact that you can't make sense of anything is Jesus. All the fullness of God himself resides bodily in this Jesus, in his person, Colossians 1. Think about if, if out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, Jesus, the word, is the abundance of God's very heart, personified. This is the one that has reconciled an entire fallen cosmos to God by dying here on the earth and rising again from the dead. He became one of us in order to give us life. That's not something he shouted down. That's something he came and did. Leonard Sweet says, I don't recommend you reading much from him, but just this is a beautiful quote. No earthly distraction, whether true or false, could stand up to the glaring light of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful statement. By the way, I didn't mean that arrogantly. Like, I can handle reading him and you can't. I read that a long time ago. I just, I wouldn't recommend you running out and getting his books is all I'm saying. That quote is golden. No earthly distraction, whether true or false, could stand up to the glaring light of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And beloved, his arms are wide enough to embrace you. Long enough to catch you. His eyes are sharp enough to see you. His legs are strong enough to outrun you. His heart is big enough to love you, even you. And if you turn away from him 10,000 times, he will rescue you 10,001. All that grace is, whatever it is, Jesus is it in fullness. It won't run out. Do we realize the implications of the fact that Jesus is the fullness of God's grace? Fullness doesn't run out. He never stops being grace. He didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for the strong. He came for the sick. And he came for the weak. And if you will see yourself for what you are, he will rescue you where you are. And when you realize, but I thought you said I couldn't see, you can't. So what do I do, Tony? Cry out. Cry out. Because if you want to, where do you think that's coming from? God is after you. He's on your trail. And just so you know, go ahead and run. And I'm not being a jerk at all. Go ahead and run. See if you can get away from him. You can't. He is relentless. God wins. If he wants you, he wins. And if you want him, then he wants you. That's the way it works. He has the power to rewrite your story entirely. He has the power to put hope where there is hopelessness. To put truth where there have only been lies. To put beauty where all there are is ashes. To put meaning where there is only confusion. He is the light that no darkness can comprehend or overcome. He's beautiful. He's strong. 
He's vast. He's limitless. He's deep. He's amazing. He's infinite. He's kind. He's wise. He's powerful. He's central. He's supreme. He's forever. He's truth. He's righteousness. He's goodness. He's purity. He's love. He is massive, incredible, incomparable, marvelous, stunning, staggering, majestic, matchless, spectacular, outstanding, immense, triumphant, victorious, precious, radiant, wonderful. That's as many as I could think of. And I bet every one of you could pick it up and use your own adjectives and we'd create this beautiful picture of him and set Moundsville on fire. In a good way. In a good way. And that, who he is, is why he makes such big promises. And Genesis was just the beginning. 